Welcome everyone to episode 4 of the Curse Land Podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. was just exactly the right age the first time I read about the flying machine. Young enough to dream, old enough to go searching for it. The article said it was located near Woodville School and I was 10 so I got on my bike and pedaled over there to find it. From the website richlandsource.com, a story by Timothy Brian McKee. The flying machine has landed. 1859 to 2018. Later, I learned that you don't have to be a youngster in order to dream, because Daniel McFarlane Cook was 39 when he invented the flying machine, and only a man with a prodigious capacity for dreaming could have conceived such a thing in 1859. He was dreaming in full throttle until the end of his life, so much so that folks around here called him Crazy Cook. He boldly proclaimed his dream to the world before it was even ready to launch, and the audacity of his assertion positively ignited the imagination of the American public, because the Mansfield Herald clipping was reprinted in hundreds of newspapers across the country, from New England to California. They all quoted his exact words, I will make a voyage to San Francisco, breakfasting here, dining there, and returning the same day for supper. Naturally, there were a few of these papers who made fun of him, but clearly most of them seemed to be holding their breath to see if his dream would come true. At the onset of the Civil War, a Cleveland paper went so far as to assure the public that Cook's flying machine was to be offered to the government as a valuable aid in the present national crisis. I probably don't need to tell you that Cook's flying machine never got off the ground, but the fearlessness invoked in its creation seemed to invest the airship with an aura that kept it intact for generations after the old inventor had left the earth. Cook painted his aerial car a rose color like the sky at dawn, and he named her Queen of the Air. It stood as a landmark in the field near his house several years after he was moved away. And when the farm sold, the flying machine was carted a few miles up Cook Road where it could be used as a corn crib. In another decade, it was a chicken coop. Then it stood empty for half a century. That's where I found it in the 1960s. Inducing Imagination The first time I saw the flying machine, it was coated with a metallic silver paint with only a few spots of rust showing around the joints and rivets. The metal floor and porthole covers were sealed tight, and there was an oak bench that curved all the way around its interior circumference. I used to go in and shut the door, and there was something about sitting in the dark under the dome that was like being in a planetarium. It had tiny holes rusted through the metal that lit up in bright pinpoints of light, just like the stars hung in the firmament. It was a true engine for generating fantasies. I always imagined starting up the motor and listening to it roar while the walls shimmied and hummed as we catapulted through dimensions of America. And I always hoped that when I opened the door I would step out into a different century. It was less of an aerial conveyance to me than it was a time machine. Time Passes There was an interval of some years in this story when I went off to grow up, and when I came back to Mansfield in the 1990s, I went looking for the flying machine. Sadly, it had vanished, and the city seemed a colder place without that icon of childhood exuberance and whimsy. I asked around, but no one had any idea what I was talking about, until someone recalled seeing a bullet-shaped metal smokehouse with portholes on a hillside above Mansfield-Washington Road. So I drove out there to glimpse it from the pavement, 
and my heart lifted just to know the old girl had made it through another couple decades. It was a few years later, as the Mansfield Bicentennial celebration was nearing, when it occurred to me that the time and occasion had come to make an official effort at preserving the flying machine for future generations. Unfortunately, when I went to find it, the landmark relic was gone again. Not to be deterred, I parked my car at its last known site and started knocking on doors. Have you seen this thing? About ten feet tall, shaped like a bullet, little round portholes. People gave me the same look that Mr. Cook must have seen a thousand times. Finally, a young man was shaking his head no until I said porthole, and then he started. Do you mean the submarine? He led me back into the woods and pointed at the flying machine. He told me that when they were kids, they pretended it took them under the sea. The Toll of Time At that point, it had been more than 40 years since I had been inside the flying machine, and I could see that without its protective shell of silver paint, it was disintegrating rapidly, and if something wasn't done soon, there wouldn't be anything to preserve. Convincing the owner to let me take the rusty old smokehouse wasn't too difficult, but finding a place to put it was a serious challenge. A couple museums in the county seemed interested, but the big old thing couldn't get indoors without removing a wall. I wrote to the Smithsonian to see if they wanted it, and they politely declined. I asked the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton if they could make a place for it in their acres of flying machines, but they didn't bother even writing back. I reached their curator on the phone one day, and he spoke to me in a way that I'm sure Crazy Cook would have recognized. Both of these national institutions utterly missed the point. Perhaps to them, it could have been more historically significant if Cook had gotten his aircraft into the air as he planned. But the fact that he remained earthbound does not lessen the poignancy of his visionary passion to soar into the sky. What he achieved was something else entirely, something more spiritual. He inspired a nation to believe, if only for a moment, or at least to suspend their disbelief. A moment of inspiration can drive the world to a whole new level of what is possible. Fortunately for us, the museum, with vision enough to preserve our odd piece of legendary dreaming, is located in our own city. The flying machine has landed finally at the North Central Ohio Industrial Museum. There is certainly no shortage of monster stories in the world. Accounts of fiends, brutes, and behemoths, Mare monsters, sasquatches, and devious little nameless gnomes have been woven from mysterious bumps and growls in the darkness since the dawn of time. There is, however, something about the unsettled expanses of the southern wild that lend themselves to the perpetuation of these stories. As the creatures that used to roam the murky gloom of uncharted woodland have been relegated to the realm of bedtime stories and campfire tales by the steady encroachment of street lamps, the preservation of the southern landscape has ensured that its less easily definable inhabitants have maintained their presence in the forefront of the camper's consciousness. While the Yeti huddles in the chilly corners in the Himalayas, and Nessie dodges sonar beams and motor blades in the Loch Ness, the pride of the south, the hillbilly beast, roams the cypress swamps of Kentucky unchecked. From the PorterBriggs.com website, a story by Sarah Glasser, The Hillbilly Beast. Between 8 and 10 feet tall, 800 pounds, and covered in a luxurious carpet of foot-long, swamp-dampened hair, the hillbilly beast is a relatively straightforward match in the lineup of average Sasquatches, yet the particular tenor of his brand is uniquely southern. Droves of camo-clad coon hunters, silent mushroom pickers, and would-be late-night canoodlers gather on online forums to share their multi-sensory experiences with the beast. With an apparent affinity for stealing hogs, cats, and scouring vegetable patches, the gustatory enthusiasm of the hillbilly beast leaves no stone unturned. 
Some have escaped, falling under the yellow-eyed leer of the beast and have only heard his trademark yowl echoing through the swamp, while others claim that the beast is silent, only expressing territorial threats by hurling large stones into their paths or through reverberating warnings made by beating tree trunks with dead sticks. A smaller sect swears that the beast communicates with them through telepathy, though, as is often the case, reliably recording such communication has proven difficult. Though many of today's stories tend to bear the mark of modernity, overturned vehicles and terrified television crews, one should not assume that the advent of the hillbilly beast's popularity is recent. Tales of the beast can be traced back to long before settlement as we know it arrived. The Cherokee people still share the stories passed down from their ancestors, legends that describe a wizened, mythical, man-like creature stalking the woods and imbued with supernatural powers. Later settlers used the mysterious hill critters as scapegoats for disappearing livestock and as threats to intimidate particularly unruly children. Even Daniel Boone, noted fearless explorer and hyperbolic historian, was said to have recounted a run-in with a hair-covered, bipedal giant that chased him through the hills of Kentucky. Today, despite the increased sightings and technological preeminence of the modern world, the beast remains as enigmatic as it was to our forerunners. Though some claim to have found remains ranging from oversized incisors to full-fledged skeletons, an intact and animate example of the beast has yet to surface beyond split-second nocturnal encounters with the less fortunate explorers of Kentucky's hills. Between the beast's elusive nature, camera shyness, and obstinate refusal to pose, clear photographs and video recordings have also proven difficult to find. Despite these setbacks, however, the beast has continued to develop an ever-increasing body of lore that challenges any would-be monster from either side of the Mason-Dixon line, ensuring that as long as Kentucky has hills, there will always be legends of the hillbilly beast. This week, we're in the Magnolia State, Mississippi, the home of Jim Henson, B.B. King, and the king himself, Elvis Presley. In the early days of World War II, warship construction helped the tiny fishing town of Pascagoula, Mississippi, grow from a population of 5,000 to nearly 15,000, seemingly overnight. Although a larger population meant an economic boost for local businesses, it also meant the police force was struggling to keep the larger population in line. Aside from the expected uptick in drunken brawls and burglaries, there was one menace wandering the streets that kept people awake at night, the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. And this story is from mentalfloss.com by Rob Lammel, Mississippi's Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. His reign of terror began on Friday, June 5th, 1942, when young Mary Evelyn Briggs and Edna Marie Heidel at the Our Lady of Victory's convent were shocked to find a man climbing out of their bedroom window. The two girls were unharmed, although each of them was missing a lock of hair. Briggs later described the man as sort of short, sort of fat, and he was wearing a white sweatshirt. The barber struck again on Monday at the Petey home, where he cut a slit in the window screen and crawled inside to snip the hair of little six-year-old Carol Petey as she lay sleeping next to her twin brother. This time, the phantom barber had accidentally left a clue, a sandy footprint near the window. The next incident occurred the following Friday night, when the home of Mr. and Mrs. Heidelberg was invaded. Like before, the window screen was cut and the invader came inside. But instead of taking his typical trophy tuft, he used a heavy iron bar to attack the couple, taking out some of Mrs. Heidelberg's front teeth and knocking her husband unconscious. Unfortunately, it all happened so quickly that neither could describe their attacker. The police deputized six men and brought in bloodhounds to pick up a scent. 
The dogs followed the trail to a pair of blood-stained gloves in the nearby woods, but that was as far as they got. The police theorized that the assailant might have stashed a bicycle in the woods to make his escape. The final attack came on a Sunday night when the hair of Mrs. R. R. Taylor was cut. She said she had been woken up by something with a sickening smell passing over her nose. The next thing she remembered was waking up and getting violently ill. Police later determined the barber must have cut the window screen, stuck a chloroform-soaked rag over Taylor's face, and then collected his lock of hair. For two more months, residents lived in fear, though no additional barber attacks occurred. Then, suddenly, police announced they had caught the phantom barber. William Dolan, a 57-year-old chemist. Dolan had sparred with Mr. Heidelberg's father, a local magistrate, over a legal issue, so it was thought he attacked the couple to seek revenge. Although this didn't directly tie him to the phantom barber invasions, police claimed a large bundle of human hair was found behind his home. The FBI later identified some of the hair as belonging to Carol Petey, the barber's youngest victim. Despite his insistence of innocence, Dolan was quickly found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was never charged with any crimes related to the hair-snatching incidents, but in the eyes of the public, he was the Phantom Barber. Six years later, Mississippi Governor Fielding Wright reviewed the case and asked that Dolan take a lie detector test. Upon passing, Dolan was given a limited suspended sentence and then eventually set free in 1951. In hindsight, some modern historians wonder if Dolan was guilty of any crime at all. He was arrested at a time when the public was in a state of panic and the police were desperate to close the Phantom Barber cases. It would have been very easy to plant the hair during Dolan's arrest, then tamper with the evidence sent to the FBI for analysis. In addition, Dolan was a known German sympathizer and considered a traitor by many townsfolk, so his arrest for the attack on the Heidelbergs was met with little resistance. Good riddance to bad rubbish, as the old saying goes. Was Dolan the phantom barber of Pascagoula, or a patsy who took the fall to quell the anxieties of a small town? We may never know for sure. Listeners, the story you are about to hear is called The Maplehurst Murders Part 2. Now, before listening to this, I suggest you go catch up on The Maplehurst Murders Part 1, which I have read for last week's episode. You can go to episode 3 and find that. There are chapter markers, like in every episode, so you might want to hear that before you get to this one. This story, like Part 1, is from richlandsource.com and is by Mark Sebastian Jordan. Less than 30 hours after the April 22, 1905 rape and murder of Miranda Bricker, Knox County Sheriff James Schellenbarger had identified a prime suspect with the help of bloodhounds. The dogs coursed for miles across the town before ending up at the house of the Copelands, a black family that lived on the corner of McKenzie and Ann Streets. Lynch mob threatens. As the officers removed 18-year-old George Copeland, they had to hold a strong defensive line to stop members of the crowd who surged forward in anger, throwing rocks at the house. One of them was brandishing a rope. The would-be lynch mob was held back, and Copeland was pushed into the automobile and driven down to the Knox County Jail, which at that time was on High Street. There, in the jail's lower level, questioning began. Sheriff Schellenbarger was not impressed with the young man's nervous answers. At 9 a.m. Monday morning, Copeland was taken next door to the Knox County Courthouse for further questioning by County Prosecutor Lot Stilwell. George Copeland denied any involvement with the crime. 
He said that he worked downtown until 8 p.m. Saturday night, then went to the Turner Pool Room under Deaver's Drugstore and played pool and chatted with friends until about 11 p.m. Copeland recalled meeting Ray Grimwood as he walked up North Main that night, but when brought in for questioning, Grimwood said that their passing encounter had been Friday night, not Saturday. Copeland agreed, but insisted that he hadn't even been on the east end of Mount Vernon lately. The manager of the pool hall, Jesse Turner, vouched for Copeland being there Saturday, though he didn't notice the specific time. He knew the suspect well, as Copeland also worked part-time at the billiard room and regularly visited when he wasn't working. In fact, he had worked all day Sunday at Turner's waiting tables, and several witnesses said that Copeland seemed relaxed and normal, not the least bit excited. Just 30 minutes into the questioning, the officials noticed the formation of a sizable mob outside the courthouse and jail. Sheriff Schellenbarger and Prosecutor Stilwell conferred with Judge Coiner and decided that there was an imminent danger of a mob breaking in and lynching Copeland. They brought a horse and buggy around to the back side of the buildings and bundled Copeland in, accompanied by Deputy Graham. The buggy drove to Centerburg, where the afternoon train to Columbus was boarded. Copeland was safely ensconced in the Columbus City Jail by the end of the afternoon. No positive evidence. At this point, Prosecutor Stilwell advised the citizens of Mount Vernon to remain calm, pointing out that as of yet, the investigators had no positive evidence. Aside from Copeland's bobbled answers to the initial questioning and the bloodhound trail, the only other things that they had were the blue hat and the fact that Copeland's shoe size matched the footprints found in the kitchen garden at Maplehurst. A number of people said that, yes, Copeland had been seen in the past in a blue hat, and a detective noticed that the tracks at Maplehurst showed that half of one of the perpetrator's shoe soles had been replaced, something that Copeland's shoes had as well. Copeland is an exceedingly black Negro, noted a local newspaper, and was, until he quit school, a star football player. When interviewed by the paper early Monday morning, Copeland said that he was not frightened because he knew he was innocent. Once Copeland had been whisked away for safekeeping in Columbus, Sheriff Schellenbarger returned to Elizabeth Copeland's house to ask her further questions and search for clues. Rifling through Copeland's clothes, he found a pair of underwear with a faint stain that Schellenbarger thought might be blood that had later been washed. He seized the underwear and sent them off to be tested at the Ohio State University, along with Miranda Bricker's blood-stained purse. Also Monday afternoon, Coroner Scarborough, assisted by Dr. John E. Russell, held a more detailed post-mortem examination of Miranda Bricker's body, apparently at Jane Bricker's residence, where the body had been sent for preparation and burial. The examination noted that Bricker's broken nose was her only head wound, other than her false teeth being knocked out. The funeral was scheduled for Tuesday. An alternate suspect. Hearing about the arrest of a black man in the murder case, Motorman Smith told the newspaper that there might be another suspect. As he had told the law enforcement officers, Smith let off a woman matching Miranda Bricker's description from the trolley at 9.12 p.m. at the intersection of High Street and Division Street. But he added that a smooth-faced man who had boarded the car on the north side of Public Square also left the trolley at Division Street and followed the woman south. Smith described the man as being about 30 years of age, wearing a brown suit and a slouch hat. In Columbus, the Ohio State Journal interviewed Copeland, quoting him at some length. Yes, I was pretty bad scared, Copeland said. Them people just went crazy and I reckon they'd have killed me if they'd have got me. But I'm innocent. I never killed nobody. He also pointed out that the bloodhounds came to the back door of the family home, not the front door, which he always used. He also noted that Sheriff Schellenbarger never brought the dogs inside to identify him. Tuesday, Miranda Bricker's funeral was held at St. Vincent de Paul Church. Although the service was private, a large crowd gathered to watch proceedings. Bricker was buried in the Mount Calvary Cemetery, 
the Catholic burial ground that adjoins Mount Vernon's Moundview Cemetery, less than a quarter of a mile from the Copeland family home. Further Questioning Copeland was returned to Mount Vernon for another round of questioning early Wednesday. He had retained attorney W.M. Coons to represent him, but the lawyer was not in his office at 9 a.m., so an intense interrogation of the young man began without him. Coons was furious when he found that this sweating had been performed without him being present to defend his client, but the county prosecutor said that he needn't worry. What the young man has said this morning has been more favorable to him than anything he has said since his arrest, Stillwell said. Later that day, the officials did another round of questioning with the Copeland 62-year-old boarder, Jerome Newman, but found he had several witnesses who could vouch for his whereabouts Saturday evening. It further became known around this time that Miranda Bricker had actually had a number of silver dollars in her purse, which were now missing. This suggested that she had not thrown the purse over the shrub. Instead, it seemed more likely that after the assault and murder, the killer had calmly rifled through Bricker's purse, throwing the handkerchief on the ground, pocketing the silver dollars, and missing the folded-up $5 bill in the dark. One of the things that came out during the questioning of Newman was that the household knew about the murder. Newman knew because his grandson had told him about it on the telephone Sunday afternoon. Attorney Coons said that George Copeland knew about the murder because a friend of his who had been in the crowd that gathered at Maplehurst Sunday morning had come up to the house and told him about it. Not on the trolley. Also Wednesday, a witness who knew Miranda Bricker came forward and said that although he was not a close friend, he knew Miranda and knew with absolute certainty that he had seen her walk in on South Main Street Saturday evening, just after 9 p.m., headed north toward Gambier Street. This raised a strong possibility that Bricker was never even on the trolley and that the woman Motorman Smith saw was not her at all. That possibility had already been considered because Motorman Smith was confident that he had dropped off the woman around 9.12. Across from Maplehurst, Mrs. Lemuel Swigert had said that she heard a woman scream, Oh my God, around 9.30 p.m. Maplehurst was only a block and a half from High Street. It doesn't take 18 minutes to walk a block and a half, even in the dark. The woman Smith saw and the smooth-faced man who disembarked after her were in all likelihood bypassers who walked near the scene of the crime just moments before it happened. Thursday, the case against George Copeland unraveled further when Mrs. A.B. Stevens identified the blue knit hat. She said that she had given the hat to her niece at her sister's home on East Vine Street on Saturday. The family loaded into the buggy for a drive and realized at some point that the hat was missing. For days, she had assumed it got lost somewhere at her sister's house until she heard about the hat involved in the murder case. She confirmed that the family buggy had driven down Division Street past Maplehurst on Saturday afternoon, and she positively identified the hat. The footprints were not holding up against sheer statistics. Not having, at that time, the forensic sophistication of modern investigations, the authorities conceded that Copeland having the same shoe size as the murderer was not substantial evidence, as it was a normal size. And the shoe repair wasn't much more specific when it is considered that in those days, shoes were not considered disposable goods. When the soles of the shoes wore out, it was customary to get the sole or part of it replaced. Most of the people walking around Mount Vernon had repaired shoes. Many of them had the same shoe size as the killer. The other logistical problem with Copeland as a suspect was the size issue. Granted, Miranda Bricker was fighting for her life and would no doubt have fought as tenaciously as she could, but the fact remains that Bricker was tall and slight, weighing only 120 pounds. George Copeland, though shorter than Bricker, was a former high school football player, it seems hard to believe that such a powerful young man could have been dragged 400 feet by Miranda Bricker. The final nail in the coffin of the case against George Copeland came Friday, when Professor Bleal of The Ohio State University reported his lab test results. The spot on George Copeland's underwear did not match Miranda Bricker's blood. George Copeland was released Friday afternoon. No other suspect was ever publicly identified though Prosecutor Stilwell muttered about having someone in mind. 
who got away with murder? Who did Stillwell suspect? The smooth-faced man? A hobo? The stable hand? And what about those bloodhounds? They led to the Copeland house, but not to the right door. And the sheriff made the error of not taking the dogs inside to make a positive ID on the suspect. There is one curious figure here that fits startlingly into the picture. George Copeland's unnamed friend, the one who told him about the murder Sunday. It is a cliché of murder mysteries that the killer returns to the scene of the crime to watch the aftermath, but the cliché arose because it does at times happen that the perpetrator is curious to see what effect his or her actions have had. The unnamed friend was reported as being in the crowd that clustered around the crime scene at Maplehurst on Sunday, April 23rd. The crowd pushed in close to look, causing the law officers to force them back. Some of the people from the crowd were pressed into service helping out with the crime scene as well, something modern investigators would avoid at all costs. If the perpetrator of the crime left the scene, spent the night down by the quarry, then came back to Maplehurst to see what he had wrought, and then walked up to the Copeland house, a trail would have been laid that matches what the bloodhounds tracked. It may have been human error that jumped to the wrong conclusion at the end of the trail. The friend's name was never revealed. If he was, indeed, the killer, he got away with it. If George Copeland suspected his friend, would that have something to do with his nervous answers during his initial questioning? At any rate, Copeland was cleared, and he resumed his life in Mount Vernon, later working as a server at the Curtis House Hotel Restaurant. His father, David Copeland, had died during George's childhood. David had been a veteran of the Civil War, serving as a private in Company E of the 45th U.S. Colored Troops. George's mother, Elizabeth, passed away in 1915. Both are buried in the family plot in Moundview Cemetery, though only David has a headstone. A New Life His mother gone, George must have decided he no longer had anything to keep him in Mount Vernon. For a long time, it was hard to locate his later whereabouts. I finally tracked him to Los Angeles, California, where George Henry Copeland filled out a draft card on June 5, 1917. The 30-year-old gave his birth date and place as April 11, 1887, Danville, Ohio. He was living at 1218 East Adams Street in L.A. with his wife and child. He was employed as a porter at the commercial barber shop on 535 South Spring Street, part of L.A.'s infamous Skid Row. His race was described as Ethiopian. For past military service, he cited being a cadet for three years in Ohio. By 1920, the true nature of George's ambition is revealed. In the 1920 U.S. Census for Precinct 103 of Los Angeles, George H. Copeland is identified as a singer who works in a theater. His wife is named Frances, and their three-year-old boy is named George E. Copeland. So what happened after that? This is where the trail turns strange and then goes cold. By 1930, when they should have appeared as a happy, middle-aged couple with a teenage boy, George and Francis disappear from the census. George E. Copeland is found on the census when he was 13, living with his uncle, Charles H. Copeland, in San Francisco. Charles was working at the time as a waiter, though he later became a cabin watchman for the railroad. His census reports identify him as being born in Ohio. Perhaps he was an older brother to George H., I have thus far been unable to locate George E. on the 1940 census. Did the boy die young? What became of George H. Copeland and his new life in California? Thus far, the old documents have not yielded their secrets. Jane Bricker lived until 1922 and arranged to have herself buried in Mount Calvary Cemetery with a small headstone. Her sister's grave remains unmarked. Prosecutor Lot Stillwell had two more major cases yet to hit in the year 1905. The second was the internationally covered Stuart Lathrop Pearson hazing death at Kenyon College late that fall. But before that, another case hit even closer to home. 
Sheriff Schellenbarger could not have known how short his time was while working on the Maplehurst murder case. As it wound down in May of 1905, he received a warrant for the arrest of a fugitive. The arrest turned into a gun battle, and Schellenbarger was shot. He lingered until October, but finally succumbed to his wounds, becoming the only Knox County Sheriff to die in the line of duty. I'll dig into that story in a future column. The Maplehurst murder remains unsolved to this day. This was from 1702 when he was born to 1747 when he died. After that, people called him the Ghost. He was born in Salonica, the oldest son of a dye merchant. He stood to inherit the business, but felt himself called to something higher and simpler. So the dye went to his younger brother, and he entered a monastery. He was 18 when he took his vows, and was given the monastic name Lucas. Father Lucas never saw his family again. His monastery, Agionuma, was on the island of Phalaris, 500 miles southeast of Salonica. He remembered his father and mother and brother in his prayers, but he did not miss them. The monastery had given him dozens of new brothers, and together they worked for the glory of God. Each brother had his place in the life of the monastery. Father Lucas was the beekeeper. He knew his bees, and his bees knew him. They landed on his habit, and his face, and his hands, and he was not stung. He walked among them in the stillness of their hum, and it was in these moments that he knew what the scriptures meant by the peace that passeth all understanding. His greatest sin was the little thrill of pride that ran through his chest when pilgrims or other brothers praised his honey. He told them that it was not his honey, it was the bees but in his heart he did feel that it was his honey, and he was glad to hear others say so. He confessed this to the abbot and was forgiven. One day he died. For several years his heart had been beating too fast. He felt fine except for some occasional lightheadedness which he attributed to the peace that passeth all understanding. But he was not fine, and one night his heart gave out, and he died in his sleep. His brothers wrapped him in his habit and veiled his face and laid him in the crypt beneath the chapel. They had buried their brothers there for 1,200 years and they expected to bury them there until Christ returned. He did not understand death. None of us do. If we believe in an afterlife, we think it'll come with certainty. Those tormenting questions of meaning and purpose are supposed to end. Hell is eternal torture, but it makes sense. You know where you are and why you're there. And so we imagine that when we die, someone, God, the devil, St. Peter, will greet us and explain our new existence. But this, as Father Lucas found out, is wrong. No one explains this life, and no one explains the next. He fell asleep in his bed and woke up on the shore of the island. A hot ache filled his chest, and he knew, immediately, viscerally, inexplicably that he was dead and had become a new kind of thing he did not know what this new thing was in many ways it was like the old thing he could still feel nausea for instance and see there was the beach in front of him and the monastery on the hill and he still had a body it seemed when he looked down he saw his beard and his stomach his legs and his feet but something had changed his sense of time had broken. The seconds no longer ticked away evenly. As he sat on the shore and thought about his new life, he saw the sun race across the sky, stop in place for what seemed like hours, he had no way to tell how long, and then fall like a stone into the sea. He prayed and waited to understand. The full moon rose and he decided to walk back to the monastery. He went first to his beehives, bees flew around him as before, but no longer landed on his habit or his body. 
It was late now, and the brothers were in their beds. He went to the chapel and prayed again. He shut his eyes, just for a moment it seemed, and when he opened them, it was almost dawn. Soon, the brothers would arrive to sing the matins. Time slipped again, and through the windows behind the altar came the red light of the sunrise. He turned and saw one of the brothers who had come to prepare the chapel and was now frozen, staring. He saw the terror in the brother's face and tried to speak, but the words got stuck between his throat and his lips, and each syllable stretched into a long groan. He stopped and swallowed and tried again. The words still would not come. Language had left him. Now he could only groan. He saw his brother begin to shake, and he ran. He hid in the crypt and prayed and waited and tried not to look at his own corpse. What was he? His life did not resemble heaven or hell or even purgatory, which he considered a Latin heresy. Some of the church fathers taught that after death the soul does not go directly to paradise, but instead sleeps until the final judgment. But the fathers were wrong. He was awake. He stayed in the crypt for some time. He couldn't tell how long. The crypt was completely dark, and he had no hunger or thirst. He tried to sleep, but couldn't. This was the new thing that he was. He could only move and think. And so, as he waited in the crypt for days or maybe weeks, he remembered again and again the terror on his brother's face and dreamed of the words that would change that fear into love. He composed long speeches in his head, descriptions of his new life, requests for patience. But when he tried to deliver them, the words died in his mouth and the groan echoed through the crypt. He prayed for forgiveness, for an understanding of his state, for the knowledge of how to end it. Except for the geckos that crawled the walls of the crypt, he was alone. Sometimes he heard the hum of his brothers. They were above him chanting the hours as they had done four times a day for 1200 years he chanted too as best he could his wordless voice blended with his brother's drone and sounded almost like singing they were his brothers still he knew that he could not explain himself but he loved them and he could not spend his new life here in the darkness listening to the geckos scuffle along the walls so he left the crypt and rejoined his brothers. He was careful not to be seen. When they chanted the hours, he stood in the darkest corner of the chapel, and he visited his bees only at night. But he could never be careful enough. Once, he was with the bees, and time started to run. One of his brothers, the new beekeeper, surprised him. He fled, and later, from his spot in the corner of the chapel, he heard his brothers whisper about the ghost. He hid in the crypt again and told himself that he would rather hide there for eternity than frighten his brothers or spoil their life together. But soon enough, the geckos and loneliness drove him back above ground. By then, his brothers seemed to have forgotten about the ghost or at least stopped talking about it. From his corner, he groaned the hours with them again. Years passed. He watched his brothers' eyes wrinkle and their beards grow longer and grayer. He began to feel a strange hope. They too might change. But no, one by one, their bodies were laid in the crypt, and he was still alone. He knew as much about the state of their souls as he knew about his own. New monks replaced the old ones, and those monks wrinkled and grayed in their turn, and were laid in the crypt and replaced by newer monks. And still he was alone. But he did not feel alone. He had his bees and his corner of the chapel and his brothers. The bodies changed, but the robes and the prayers and the chants stayed the same. Of course, he sometimes felt sick when time lurched forward, or lonely when he listened to his brothers talking and longed to join them. But he told himself that he had felt sick and lonely as a living person too. Those feelings had passed then, and they passed now when he remembered the vast thing of which he was only a part. The little whine of his sickness and loneliness was drowned out by the hum of the bees and the drone of the chant sounding together across the centuries. The world was changing. 
He heard his brothers discuss in France, the king, the poor queen dragged from her palace. Soon, Europe was at war, but the monastery was the same. Years later, the brothers talked about the Turks and independence and the new king. Greece was now free, it seemed. The brothers prayed and chanted as they always had. So it went, fascist and communist, partisan and junta. These words echoed around the halls of the monastery for a few years and were gone. Things kept happening, but they always happened out there. Still, his brothers sometimes worried about the world. He wished he could help them, wished he could speak the truth that would ease their hearts, and hated his silence all the more. His brothers were young, so they sighed over the little things of the world. Referendums and restructurings, credit default swaps, and economic adjustment programs. He did not quite understand what these things were, but he knew that they did not matter. 250 years of death had taught him one truth. Kings and governments changed, but Agio Numa did not. In early 2018, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund met to determine the conditions for the next round of the Greek bailout. These conditions included further pension cuts, privatization, and deficit reduction. As part of the deal, the Greek church had to become revenue neutral. That is, priests would no longer receive a salary from the state. In its report, the IMF noted that the church had many ways to make up the shortfall. It could, for instance, better utilize some of its vast property portfolio. The church hired a German consulting firm to assess which of its properties it could sell, or ideally, rent. The firm's report identified the monastery of Agio Numa as a key asset. The monastery had several advantages. It was located close to Naxos and other islands with tourism infrastructure already in place, ferries, etc., and it required little development. The existing monastery could easily be converted into a resort-style complex for mid- to high-end travelers. The brothers of Agio Numa were notified and reassigned to various monasteries in the Asian and on the mainland. The church hired the Sylvan Group, an international hospitality management company, to administer the property. Sylvan came highly recommended and had a reputation for providing innovative solutions to world-class properties and brands. The group had been formed in Boston, but its headquarters were now in Ireland. It would be in charge of both the marketing and day-to-day -day administration of the former monastery. Sylvan promised to respect the rich tradition of the site, that tradition was, after all, the very thing that would form the core of the resort's brand identity. The group planned to target travelers looking for a unique and authentic historical and or spiritual experience. Accordingly, Agio Numa was developed with utmost care. The group installed only the most necessary conveniences. Mattresses on the hard monastic beds, a modern kitchen and showers... Wi-Fi, a small fitness center in the former library. Unfortunately, some parts of the former monastery could not be preserved. The apiary, for instance, was removed because the presence of so many bees could deter guests with allergies, or worse, invite lawsuits. In spring 2019, guests began to arrive at the former monastery. Soon, several guidebooks listed it as a great stop off the beaten path. Its TripAdvisor page had hundreds of positive comments. A woman from New Jersey said it was so beautiful, and a Danish man called it spiritual and well-preserved. It met its projected revenue totals. One day, a Belgian couple returned to their room at the former monastery and found a robed, bearded man standing next to their bed. They demanded to know who he was and why he was there. The man opened his mouth and groaned. The sound seemed to come out of the earth itself. The Belgians felt it vibrating in their teeth. They ran downstairs and complained to the front desk, but when a resort associate checked their room, there was no sign of the man, and nothing had been stolen. The manager nonetheless apologized to the Belgians, moved them to a new room, and refunded the cost of their stay. 
A few days later, two Korean children were playing in the chapel. They chased each other past the icons and around the pillars, and suddenly the man stepped out of the shadows. His groan knocked the children to the ground. Hours later, they were still crying. The Sylvan group contacted the island police, who searched the little fishing village at the south end of the island, but no one matched the man's description. The man appeared more and more. He scared a Canadian couple at breakfast and ran through the kitchen during the dinner rush. He surprised a young couple on the first night of their honeymoon and caused an old woman from northern Virginia to fall and break her wrist. The group began to worry. The woman from northern Virginia had sued and the settlement was significant. Worse, the group had no plan to end the man's appearances, which brought the possibility of further suits and settlements. It questioned each of the resort's associates, convinced that one of them knew the man's identity. Several associates were fired, but the appearances did not stop. The majority of the associates attributed the man's appearance to some supernatural factor. At first, the group dismissed this as superstition. Many associates were migrants from sub-Saharan Africa, but eventually, after several more appearances, it was forced to admit that it had no better explanation. The group considered some extreme options and even contacted the Greek church about an exorcism. But before it could be performed, a higher power intervened and Agio Numa was saved. At the end of June, four Oxford students stayed at the former monastery. They spent their first day at the beach and watched the sun sink into the Aegean. As they were returning to the former monastery, they saw someone standing on the path ahead of them. They approached and the figure turned. It was, of course, the man. The students spoke to him, and he groaned and shook the students to their bones. They stepped back, but did not run. One of them took out her iPhone and began to film. The video lasts 53 seconds. The man stands, looking at the students, and then groans again. The video's sound distorts into piercing fuzz. Off camera, one of the students swears. The video zooms in on the man's face. His mouth hangs open. He stares at the camera for several seconds, turns, and runs. The camera follows him off the path and loses him among the bushes. When the students return to the former monastery, they watched the video several times and posted it to Instagram. Within a day, BuzzFeed had written a story on it. CNN showed it at the top of every hour for six days. A version uploaded to YouTube received 953 million views, almost as many as Katy Perry's firework. Newspapers and online content aggregators published and republished stories about the haunted monastery, and comment sections filled with theories about the ghost. Most people thought that the video was viral marketing for an upcoming horror film, but The Sun published an exclusive history of the murdering monk who was doomed to walk the night as punishment for his sick crimes. Reservations at Agio Numa surged. When they checked in, guests asked about the ghost. When was the last time he had been seen, and where was the best place to see him? They spent their days at the beach, and at night, they roamed the halls of the former monastery with their iPhones. The Sylvan group worked quickly and created a guide, which was given to guests when they arrived at the former monastery. The guide offered helpful tips for viewing the ghost, and as always, it was done with the utmost care and respect. For instance, it avoided terms like haunted monastery, which, due to its similarities to Disney's haunted mansion, the group feared would damage the sense of authenticity and spirituality that were essential characteristics of the former monastery's brand identity. The guests were not disappointed. The ghost appeared more and more in the rooms, the fitness center, the refectory. But as the guide noted, he was most often spotted in the northwest corner of the chapel, next to the mural of St. John. This was the darkest corner of the chapel, and even when the ghost was not there, its presence seemed to linger. Guests often heard a low hum there, a faint vibration through the floor and the wall. When the students had filmed it, the ghost had been confused, but now it seemed to be angry. A Chinese family saw it on the roof and took out their phones. 
The ghost groaned and the family continued to film, but instead of running, the ghost let out another, deeper groan that shook the monastery down to the crypt. The family was very frightened and very satisfied. The ghost got angrier and angrier and the guests were thrilled. It began to chase them through the halls and the former monastery was booked three years in advance. The last sighting was in the chapel. The ghost was in his usual corner, his hands against the mural of St. John. He turned to look at the German woman filming him, but did not deliver his usual groan. He stepped forward and passed through St. John and into the wall. After a week of no sightings, the manager reassured the guests. There had been almost daily sightings in the last few months, but this was unusual, and the ghost's absence was simply a regression to the mean. Surely he would appear soon, but another week passed without a sighting, and guests began to ask for refunds. Some Israelis came to see him a few miles away, on one of the cliffs at the north end of the island, but when they returned the next day with a large group of other guests, they saw nothing but stones and scrub and a few wild goats. Negative comments flooded the former monastery's trip advisor page, and reservation after reservation was canceled. Fraudistery trended for a few days, and the New Yorker published the rise and fall of Agionuma. The Sylvan Group halted its development plans. Given the demand, it had been in the early stages of building a new resort complex just north of the monastery, and refocused on branding. It pivoted away from the historical, spiritual brand and launched a new campaign emphasizing the natural beauty of the island. It was too late. The U.S. student loan bubble had just burst, and it had taken the global financial system down with it. Experts said it was the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Tourism in the Southeast Asian was devastated. The Sylvan Group downsized its staff and halved its rates, but at the height of the season, the former monastery had only six guests. Now, for the first time in 1,500 years, Agio Numa was quiet. The Sylvan Group, however, remained optimistic. The economy would recover. It always did. In a few years, they could complete the rebranding. Or perhaps the ghost would return and chase the delighted guests again. The immediate prospects looked bleak, but for the long term, the group had faith. But just as Father Lucas did not understand his death, the Sylvan Group was not prepared for what happened next. It was late September, and the only guests at Agio Numa were a family from California, an assistant professor of management and finance, her husband, and their two unvaccinated children. They were in the chapel, taking pictures of the murals, when they heard a low hum. They followed it to the northwest corner of the chapel, to the mural of St. John. The family stood and listened, and the hum grew louder and louder. They had heard the rumors of the ghost and were very excited. The son hit the wall with his palms. His mother told him to stop. He had knocked some of the paint from St. John's beard, but she too wanted to see the ghost, and when he started to hit the wall again, she said nothing. The sound of the hum sharpened, and the family felt it tingling along their skins. The son slapped the wall again, over and over, and stopped only when his sister shouted that something had bit her. She started to cry, and her mother and father squinted at the little red lump that had swollen up on her arm. The son pointed up the wall and told his parents to look. The father shushed him and kissed the bump on the girl's arm, but the son kept telling them to look. He was pointing to a crack in the stone just above St. John's head, out of which came a cloud of large black bees. They had been there all along, of course. When the Sylvan group dismantled the hives, some of the bees had escaped into the spaces between the walls. They had built new combs there, and bred, and bred. The ghost had tended them for a while, but now he was gone, and they were wild and angry. The family ran, but it didn't matter. The bees landed on their hands and faces and necks. The swarm poured from the crack above St. John's head, covered the murals of the saints and virgin and swelled out of the chapel into the hall, the lobby, the kitchen, the fitness center. The few remaining associates were too late. They heard the buzz and then it was on them. 
The bees kept coming, and in a few minutes, the former monastery was theirs. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.